title of the message this morning is Grace and Gifts. Grace and Gifts. Last week we examined verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. In verse 2, we looked at the first half of the sentence in which Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. If you want to look in your Bible and follow along, that's verse 2. First part of the sentence, do not be conformed to this world. In the second part of the sentence, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the question this morning that I put before you is, what does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? What does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? I believe that it means that we are to renew our Christian mindset or our Christian context, our Christian mindset that is by default renewed by the knowledge of the gospel, by the knowledge of the word of God, and renewed especially by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that again. Because that was a lot. It means that we are to renew our Christian mindset or renew our Christian context. Our Christian mindset that is, by default, renewed by the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of the word, and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words... Our mind is transformed and renewed as we live in and walk by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And because this transformation being accomplished by the Holy Spirit in us is a sanctifying renewal, it automatically makes us sensitive to discern to test and to prove what is the will of God in each situation. I'm going to read that one more time because that was a lot too. Because of this transformation being accomplished by the Holy Spirit in us, okay, this is a sanctifying renewal. It automatically makes us sensitive. If we're in the Spirit, we're walking in the Spirit, we're in the Word, We're renewing our mind with the word. The Holy Spirit's renewing our mind in our Christian context. Then we automatically know what to test, what to prove. And we automatically adopt a discernment in each situation as to what the will of God is in that situation or what the will of God is in our lives. You follow me? I want you to see here that when... Paul contrasts being conformed to the world with being transformed by the renewal of your mind. He does not mean, listen, he does not mean that we are simply uh, to replace a list of immoral things 
that we did when we were conformed to the world with a new list of moral things that we do now as Christians. If you venture out to do that, folks, in and of yourselves, you will be easily and quickly frustrated. Why? Because you can't keep a new list of moral things by your own intent and your own effort. You cannot keep a new list of moral things by your own power. You can only be morally upright and live in a transformed life that is antithetical to this world if and only if the Holy Spirit is doing it in you and through you by his power, not by your power. That's all I'm trying to say. Because you have no power within yourself apart from God. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15.5. The context there in John 15.5 is fruit. Not just fruit, but fruit that is indicative of a transformed life. You know you need to have a transformed mind before you can have a transformed life. Okay? The renewing of your mind that Paul speaks of in our text is only possible when we are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Period. You must understand that this is a blood-bought, spirit-accomplished change in you from the inside out. If you are born again from above, then there's a renewal of your mind that takes place in you by the transformation of Almighty God through Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. This is so thematically laden from Genesis to Revelation that this Christian life, this transformed life, this transformed mind is a Trinitarian gig. You can't do it at the the exclusion of one or more of the persons of the Godhead. You're transformed by Almighty God through your faith in Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are clear on that. And I think this interpretation is further solidified by the fact that the Greek word that Paul uses here in our text for transformed is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. Guess when it was used? When Jesus was transformed or transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember with Elijah and Moses? This was inarguably a 100% God thing. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun 
and his clothes became as white as light. Matthew 17, 2, Mark 9, 2. And just like our Lord's transfiguration was miraculous, so is our transformation that takes place by the renewal of our minds by way of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, you hear a lot of preachers today saying that one has to renew their mind with the Word of God, right? As a matter of fact, everybody says that when they read these verses in the beginning of Romans 12. I don't disagree with that. I said it myself at the very beginning of this sermon. What I do disagree with, however, is when one teaches that very thing and acts as if just reading the Word alone is going to enable you to be transformed. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that you cannot even begin to understand the Word of God without the Holy Spirit illuminating that Word to your spirit. We must not lose sight of the fact that it is the Holy Spirit that makes us understand Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit that teaches us to use Scripture and to discern God's will for our lives. And it is the Holy Spirit that quickens Scripture to your mind as a sword to fight the wiles of the devil and to fight your fleshly temptations to go back and be conformed to the world. And Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 8. You could turn there if you like. So I'm going to read a lengthy list. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, where Paul says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. In other words, they've got their mind set on being conformed to and loving this world because that's what the flesh desires, right? But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It's only two ways, folks. There's flesh and there's spirit. Okay? So if you're in the realm of the flesh, you can't please God. Paul says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. But whose righteousness, folks? Christ's. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. And it is the Spirit of God who enables us to transform our lives and renew our minds. Okay, let's move on to verses 3 through 8 of Romans 12. In verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Please Underscore that in your mind. We are individually members of one another. Verse 6. Having gifts. Gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Paul says. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, so there's the context. Now that we know the context, let's look at verse 3, which is kind of a long verse. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The first thing I'd like to point out in regard to verse 3 is that the Greek connotation stresses that the first outcome of a renewed mind is a sober view of oneself. One more time. The first thing that we need to see is that the Greek connotation of a renewed mind is a sober view of oneself. Do you have, I'm asking you, do you have a sober view of yourself. Or are you too busy concentrating on the faults of others even to assess yourself? We are told 
by Paul not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And as I alluded to a moment ago, these questions cannot be asked or answered apart from the context. What's the context? Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not, do not all have the same function. Verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the context, as I said 52 times, we are not to think of ourselves as isolated. We're not to think of ourselves as isolated. We are to think of ourselves as participating in the one body of Christ in which a diversity of gifts contribute to unity and purpose. Boy, the devil wants to make us think that it's an isolated Christianity. You do your thing, I do my thing. You're in your place in your Christian walk and I'm in my place in my Christian walk. I'm not going to judge you, you don't judge me. That's not Christianity. It has nothing to do with Christianity except that it's the opposite of Christianity. There's no room in the body of Christ for lone rangers. Christianity is not an episode of the Lone Ranger, but more like an episode of the Little Rascals. Now that comment was for those of you who are over 55 years of age. Okay? Now for the 30 to 50 year olds, Christianity is not an episode of Blossom. It's more like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the Power Rangers. So what am I saying? I'm saying that Christianity is not something you do by yourself. No, it is a group affair. It is a team effort. The entire section of Romans 12, 3 through 8, is about using God-given gifts to serve other Christians in the body of Christ. That's the context here. To use the gifts God gave you to serve other Christians in the body of Christ. It's clear that these gifts have been given vis-a-vis God's grace. Sheer, singular, grace alone. Verse 6. This is the theme throughout Paul's writings. Paul has said that his very ministry is a result of God's grace. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is advocating for you and I to have a realistic and sober assessment of our God-given gifts. Has anybody even thought of their God-given gifts lately? We're not to think of ourselves in any way other than in the context of this chapter 
what God has given us or assigned to us to help each other and love on one another. And I'd like to point out here that the measure of faith, he uses that phrase, measure of faith, the measure of faith Paul speaks of in verse 3 is not a saving faith. But instead, it's the measure of faith suited for the exercise of your particular God-given gift. And these gifts, they are diverse. What does that mean? We know what the word diverse means, but why are they diverse? Because the needs are diverse, right? Each person in the body of Christ has different needs at different times in life. And they certainly are not all the same. Not everybody's going through the same thing at the same time. Someone might see their brother or sister in Christ going through something that is completely foreign to them. As such, they wouldn't know how to handle it or what advice to give to that person. But there is someone else, I can assure you, that God has raised up in that same body of believers within these four walls who has been through that. And as such, knows all about it. To see that need and not minister to it, having known about it, having been being able to empathize with that person, okay? Seeing that need and doing nothing to minister to it, while you have the ability and the empathy to comfort that person, guys, I'd go as far as to saying that's a sin. You've been through something, and the person sitting next to you or across from you has been through the same, is going through the same thing, and you can help them because you've been through it, and you don't even reach out. That's sinful. It's selfish, and it's sinful. God wouldn't give you the gift if He didn't want you to use it. I mean, what's the purpose of giving somebody a gift if they're never going to use it, or if they're going to re-gift it, right? So I'd like to say a word about gifts in the church, okay? As pastors, the biggest problem, and I say that without reservation, the biggest problem in a local body of believers is that the same rule applies here in church as in business. I've talked about this before the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. You know what I'm saying? And that means that either 80% of the people don't realize that they have God-given spiritual gifts or they know that they have God-given spiritual gifts, but they refuse to use those gifts in the church. Trust me, it's the latter. They know they have the gifts. They just refuse to use them. Most people refuse to even think about them. They just don't care. 
These people want to come to church and take advantage of everything the church has to offer, but they don't want to volunteer for anything. And they especially don't want us to tell them that they need to figure out what their spiritual gifts are in the Lord and that they need to use them to aid their brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. They don't want to hear that. Many times, actually, most of the time, it's very easy for those in leadership to observe and see, know what a person's spiritual gifts are in that body, that local body of believers. It's not hard to do. Nowhere in our text does Paul allude to these gifts being a secret. Nor does he allude to the idea that you might not know what your gifts are. He assumes, Paul assumes that you know what your spiritual gifts are in these verses. And he assumes that you'll use them. Read it. You'll see. The assumption is there. People come up to me all the time and they say things like, why don't we have this ministry or that ministry in our church? And my answer is pretty much the same every time. I tell them, you're right. There is a need for that ministry in our church. And in fact, there are people in our church right now, okay, that could do that ministry. And I know they could do that ministry. I know they have a gifting to do that, but they refuse to do it. Why? Well, because they're so busy being conformed to the world that they have no desire or interest in using their God-given gifts for the body of Christ. That's why. Some people will go as far as to say to me in reply, well, have you mentioned it to them? Have you asked them to do it? And I say, of course, I've asked them to do it. Not only individually, but we've made the needs of the congregation know publicly, known publicly. When I talk to somebody in person, people, well, what did they say? When you asked them to do this ministry or do that, they gave some lame excuse why they couldn't do it. Then the person speaking to me gets this look of astonishment on their face like they can't possibly believe that the pastor would ask someone to participate in a ministry and they wouldn't do it. And I, I kid you not, though, this is how the conversations go. And those conversations, those requests for different viable and much needed ministries in the church happen more often than you think. The other thing that I hear when I ask people to participate in a ministry or help out in a ministry because I see God's gifting in them for that ministry, they'll say something like, this is kind of a real popular line right now, well, I, I don't have time for that. Uh, my, my ministry is to my husband and my children. 
Well, of course your ministry's to your husband and your children. Everybody that's married has a ministry to their spouse and their children. Paul does not say in these verses, I want you to use your God-given gifts in the body of Christ unless you're married and have kids. Well, then you're exempt because your ministry is to your husband and your kids. I mean, seriously, folks. The other side of the coin is that we have existing ministries that aren't difficult to do, and we are constantly looking for additional volunteers because, as I said, the 20% that are doing that ministry now are burned out. They need a break, but no one will step up and give them a break. And people will come to me and they'll say, well, don't you have somebody to help so-and-so out? No, I don't. If I did, they'd be helping so-and-so out. Often enough, I could plainly see what people's gifts are. And yet, when I encourage them to make an assessment and use those gifts for the body, they won't do it. And frankly, I will never cease to be amazed by that. That amazes me. It really does. Because I get convicted by the Holy Spirit when I don't use my gifts. And I don't understand how other Christians don't get convicted by God when they won't use their gifts for God. Paul assumes in our text that you will help. There's no assumption in his mind that you won't. There's nothing in the text. As a matter of fact, when he talks about gifts extensively in 1 Corinthians 12, nothing there either where Paul alludes to the fact that or the notion that you might not want to use your gifts. The assumption is that you will want to use your gifts In verses 4 through 8 of our text, if you want to look there, please. 4 through 8 of Romans 12. Paul uses the analogy of the body of Christ and its various parts to illustrate the nature of the church, which he does also in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, 12, if you're taking notes, that there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. He goes on to say in verse 7 that with each gift, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good of the body. So once again, Paul is very consistent in what he says about these gifts and the body of Christ. I don't want you to leave here today without understanding that we are joined eternally to Christ and to each other. As a matter of fact, one of the top three things that I'd like you to leave with here today is an understanding, to have an understanding 
that you are, if you're a Christian, truly born again, you are joined eternally to each other just as much as you're joined to Christ. Does everybody see that? We are joined to each other in Christ to help each other and to love on one another. And it's within this God family, God hyphen family, that we are supposed to use our gifts. It's within this God family that people will benefit from our gifts. In verse 9 of our text, if you want to look, the Apostle Paul tells us, look, let your love be genuine. Nobody wants... No, no pastor or leader wants people to be coaxed into using their gift. We want you to have a genuine love for your fellow believers and want to use your gift. And he tells us here that we are to love one another with a brotherly affection. Think about that for a minute. A brotherly or sisterly affection, and that we should outdo one another in showing honor. Have you ever meditated on that one? Ask yourself, how can I outdo someone in showing honor? And when Paul says that we should outdo each other in showing honor, I want you to know that the Greek connotation there is that we should go ahead and love first, not waiting for the other person to love. We lose a lot when we translate from Greek to English because that's huge right there, that we should go ahead and love first, not waiting for the person to love us first First, to love us first, first. I don't know how else to say it. Anyway, so think about this between now and next week. We're going to talk next week um, more specifically about the gifts themselves. But think about where you are in your Christian walk, please. And think about what gifts you have, what talents you have. You know what they are. And think about how God might want you to use your gifts and your talents in this body of believers. Again, it's not something that Paul suggests. It's something he assumes that we will do in our love for each other. Let's pray.